is the Equity Experience Podcast, a space created for every educator or school leader who is authentically pursuing equity and inclusion in their classrooms and schools. I'm your host, Dr. Carla Manning, and I welcome you. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Carla Manning. Thank you for being here, and welcome to the show today. I hope you are well and blessed. I hope I speak blessings over everyone who is listening to you and your family, to your finances, your mindset, and your spirituality. So thank you for being here and listening to today's episode. Today, we are having an exciting conversation with a colleague, and I will call her a colleague because we do similar work and have similar mission statements. So today, we will have a great conversation with Ms. Chanel Poe who is a former school board president at a school district in Arizona. But Ms. Chanel Poe also comes to us as an educator activist, a parent, a community organizer, and a speaker who is very passionate and purposeful in her beliefs and values with educational equity, racial equity, and social justice in communities. So thank you for being here, Chanel. Dr. Manning, thank you so much for having me as a guest on your show. I'm so excited to be a part of your divine blessings upon your listeners, and I'm happy to share my experience and expertise. Excellent. Thank you. I love that energy. And yes, welcome, welcome. So Chanel, if you can just start us off with explaining your background and interest in educational equity. So what brought you to where you are today? What are your credentials and your areas of expertise and the work that you do. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I'm a mother. I'm a woman, but I'm a mother first. And my experience with educational equity has been firsthand experience with my son. I have an African-American son who is of a darker, the berry, sweet of the juice, dark skin hue. And, you know, our experiences started out when I enrolled him in preschool at a very early age. And I noticed that there were different ways that he was being mistreated. I didn't realize it was mistreatment at the time because I was so new to motherhood and I was just trying to understand the school system. And I felt as if my son was misunderstood. He's a very bright young man. But when the school started calling me specifically to pick him up and me disrupting him from being in a classroom and disrupting myself as a single mother to have to leave work, and go pick my child up from school, I noticed that there was some issue. And that's what really pushed my level of engagement as a parent to be there for my child, to support him in his educational journey. So I did a lot of volunteering in his classroom and going on field trips. And, you know, as time progressed and as I got older, I decided I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan, and I decided to move to Phoenix, Arizona because I wanted to provide my child with a world experience. And I wanted to give him something that I felt that was better here than in Detroit. And my son was, you know, very energetic and loved hanging out with boys. He was the only child. And I ended up finding him a sports league and got him engaged in football because my son is so cool and so unique. I let him express himself through his haircuts. So haircuts is a big thing with mommy, keeping her son looking good, polished and clean. And I let my son be in charge. I let him take charge of his haircuts. And he liked to get designs in his haircuts. So when he was playing for the Saints, 
he got this really, I found him a great barber. He got this really cool barber that like engraved saints in the back of his head. And it was just like a piece of art. It was like so, so cool. Well, I got a call from the school that said that his haircut was against dress code policy. And I'm like, okay, what do you want me to do? They're like, it's a distraction and you need to pick him up now. Wow. You know, I just felt frustrated. I felt helpless. I didn't understand. You know, I thought I was kind because I was a parent that bought stuff to the classroom and celebrated his birthday and, and, you know, would volunteer. And it's like, why are they picking on him? So the next day I sent him to school. I tried to use some black eyeshadow to try to cover it up. And they wasn't having it. You know, they asked me to come and pick him up again. I said, well, what do you want me to do? And they was like, you're going to have to shave his head. And I was like, the hell I will. I'm not going to embarrass my child and give him an unsavory haircut. So going through those types of things made me keenly aware. Over the years, I had gotten involved with organizations. I used to work with the Black Chamber of Commerce and it didn't take very long for me to see the inequities in our elected leadership and those who hold C-suite positions and decision-making positions for companies and organizations. And I started taking some civic engagement trainings after attending healthcare reform rallies. And we had moved closer to the downtown area. And one day I had gotten a call from one of the current board members who serves on the board asking me would I be interested and looking into a vacancy on the school board. I'm just thinking about over the years, being a mother, my son was still in school at the time. I'm trying to think of what we were going through at that time. In middle school, my son was dealing with uh, discrimination. Um, I had got suckered into a new charter school that said it was, you know, in the heart of South Phoenix where he would be around more students that look like him and educators that look like him and but it was a brand new concept and that the classrooms are going to be separate. Like there was specific classrooms for boys and then girls. Cause I just really wanted my son to really focus in on his education and that school tore him up. You know, he got called the N word so many times and I was just kind of like, you know, trying to talk to administration and trying to, you know, be an advocate with peer mediating with other parents, but that protocol wasn't necessarily being follow. So just throughout the years after my son, you know, being traumatized, I ended up switching him to the school district prior to my getting on the board. And once it was solidified that I got on the board, I knew quickly that that position was not set up for single mothers. It was not set up for African-Americans to lead in this capacity. And that's when my hunger for knowledge and to get to the root causes of why are there educational inequities and why do these trends and disparities exist? And I started instantly getting involved with our state school board association to understand the policies and practices and governing powers that I had as a board member. And soon thereafter, I started plugging myself into national organizations with racial equity at the foundation, where we would have and endure a professional development training with experts from the Center for Popular Democracy and from the National Women's Law Center and a host of other 
equity-focused, social justice-led organizations, and my own experience here in Phoenix. You know, during some of this time, we have had the shooting of unarmed child Trayvon Martin and, you know, me hosting my first rally, uh, working for the chamber. That was pretty, you know, at the time, the people that I was working with, that was something that was kind of frowned upon. Like, how dare her? You know, I had had a newly relationship. Well, I had an ongoing relationship because I helped out the person who was the mayor at the current time. But I still felt as if I needed to call the mayor and say, we're having a rally. Tell me how to do it. What do I got to do so we don't get arrested? And regardless, it's going down. So understanding the community, my constant outreach and being a part of multiple campaigns, grassroots campaigns. First moving to Arizona, not having a vehicle and catching the bus with my eight-year-old child to South Phoenix to go knock doors uh, to people who are not typically engaged. So, you know, my support and other political candidates, I learned a lot about people and listening to what people who feel like their voices are not heard. And then me going back, looking at the data, it just had me really work diligently to develop myself. And in 2015, I was named the Arizona School Board Association Advocate of the Year. In 2016, I won an election for the Arizona School Board Association Black Caucus and became president which also led me a seat on the board of directors for the Arizona School Board Association, where I push for equity. There is officers on the executive staff, and it's like, you know, vice president, treasurer. But my thought process is why not integrate your two caucus chairs? We had the Black Caucus, and we also had Hispanic Native American Indian Caucus. My thought process behind that is that when you go to Washington, D.C., you have a board that reflects Arizona. So I did a lot of push. Some people say your work had went so far, but I definitely use my position of power to help further educate my colleagues and open up unique perspectives from our students. So I had the ability and authority to host student summits by bringing students to the table to speak their truth in front of board members. This also includes bringing the Black History Mobile 101 Museum to our annual conference who also had artifacts and depictions of African-Americans with slave chains and books that oppressors and colonizers would give their children called Three Little Niglets, etc. To really put that in their face and to really kind of involve the community who consists of parents and educators and community organizations who advocate, but bringing them into the fold because they never really been invited to stuff like that. Even though it's not necessarily geared towards them, I just felt as if they should have an understanding of the information that governing boards have and understand our autonomy and power that we can create those welcoming, inclusive uh, school districts. You know, a lot of my experience comes from firsthand experience, but also granted professional development. Uh, Professional development, understanding the laws, understanding the policies, understanding my powers and how that directly relates to academia and public schools. Indeed, indeed. Beautiful, beautiful story. Thank you for sharing (laughs) all of your experiences. We love it. We love it. You know, I have like two questions that we can go into. So you were a school board president, very recent. So if you can, would you mind sharing with us some of the challenges that were faced? (laughs) But I want you to also ground these challenges, you know, speaking from a Black woman. So do you think that, you know, any challenges you experienced were very racialized and or because you are a woman? 
But then, of course, also tell us about some of the wins, some of the accomplishments and successes that you've experienced as a school board president. So some of the challenges, things that were hiccups and bumps in the road, but then also tell us, you know, what you did, what strategies you did to create um, accomplishments and wins for the school district that you were representing. You know, some people will say that's an activist turned politician. And I don't know how I feel about the word politician. I truly prefer public servant. Um, You know, but as I said, my level of engagement with grassroots organizations, we didn't have at the time any African-American social justice organizations. So I found a lot of my fight with the Latino community. Um, And during that time, it was like SB 1070 and you could see that people were being mistreated. And I know it was only a matter of time before people like us would be mistreated. So from going to speaking up at public meetings and rallies to actually being on the board Diaz and being able to articulate the disparities, because, you know, when people get on the school board, it's like a horse and pony show. You know, it's like everything is all good. We're so happy. Everybody's doing such a great job. And for me to be this outgoing organizer slash activist come on the board, I'm like, it's disparities in student discipline. You can't tell me because I'm a mama, my son, my friend, people in the network. And one of my colleagues, Mr. (laughs) Mr. White, had referred to me as the Kaepernick of the school board. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? That's A-OK. Initially, the conversation started when I first got on the board. Um, I advanced the conversation in 2014, uh, asking specifically to see disaggregated student discipline. I wanted to see the grade level, the race, the ethnicity, the offense of why they were being put out the classroom. And is our school district, in fact, a part of the common trend, but we are hurting students by pushing them out of the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I tried to express this by using national data because I didn't have any of the school district data at the time and use different initiatives by such as the NAACP and the ACLU that I have learned to grow and learn so much about. Um, And it was just like I was a black woman just speaking. It was like, yeah, you talking, but you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm kind of like, well, you know, I've been in these rooms and, you know, I do talk to, you know, elected officials about, you know, changing some of their policies and practices. So I, I kind of do know what I'm talking about. Well, it took for uh, a recommendation to bring in an ASU professor who happened to be a white man uh, to take a look at our data and present to the board. And he said to the board what I said, um, but it wasn't heard. And, you know, I think one problem in, you know, in education and just even, even, you know, the dynamics of being a Black woman, you know, it always goes back to a historical context when we were silenced. And when we spoke up and knew what we knew and said what we said, but nobody still wanted to believe us. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think that that's very much so within the system. And what I had to learn was, which was challenging, was how do I still press forward even though I know that I may not be being treated fairly as I should. So the white man came, he told us what we knew. So, you know, recommendations started to come up as, again, me belonging to these national professional development, municipal elected official networks uh, to say, hey, 
we need to stop and disrupt student discipline data. How about we start looking at restorative practices? I had another board member at the same time who had went to a conference and shared their experience. So that was for the greater good. And that's how we advanced the conversation. Uh, the school district ultimately end up um, implementing the first restorative justice center um, in the state. Uh, we had also were very intentional on cutting back on the student discipline and we formed an equity committee um, due to my recommendation of uh, developing an equity statement, which was something that I got from our state association. So it was really about, you know, looking at these trends and looking at our board and saying, hey, are we adding to it? Or are we doing something new or innovative? Holding those type of accountable conversations was kind of like frowned upon because once again, the superintendent is so great. The district is doing a great job. But then when you look at our data and you look at our numbers, it's not looking reflective. It's not looking reflective of who's teaching our students, not reflecting the demographic of our district. What is the curriculum um, that we're teaching our students? And what are we doing to keep our students in the classroom? These so, conversations, go ahead. I was gonna say these, mm -hmm. these conversations advanced over the years also through board resolutions. Mm -hmm. If you go to the Baltz district website and look under the governing board, these are all of the, uh, resolutions that I introduced to help move the needle for sustainability, which could potentially impact policy in which it has, and policy change for the good to improve the quality of education for all students. Indeed, indeed. So can you tell us about some of the work that you did regarding talented and gifted education? I remember... Oh. Um, I remember you sharing some thoughts around around some changes that um, that you were initiating. So, what what was some of the work that you done in that area? Uh, again, looking at everything with a racial equity lens. You know, we get presentations from our different departments um, to the governing board. And one thing that was a question to me is that I want to see the, de the demographic data of who's currently in our gifted and talented programs, and then tell me the process or how do you identify whether a student is gifted or talented. And then I want to know, since we have multilingual students in our district, how are we doing something verbal and nonverbal? And it's constantly bringing this up and it's constantly edifying myself and going to the equity conference in Washington, D.C. with the National School Boards Association to learn what are people doing, getting connected with groups like Cube. And this is a lot of time that's investing and deeply understanding it so that when I do make recommendations, I can feel confident and we'll have something to at least reference. Um, but in terms of being able to get the, um, I'm trying to think what the question was specifically. Oh, the gifted. Oh, the gifted. Oh, yeah. Constantly bringing that up, talented and gifted, right? But guess what? One thing I noticed is that even as a board, we can still input recommendations and policy resolutions, but everything truly needs to be carried out by the superintendent. And me bringing recommendations about saying, hey, I noticed that this school district, they tested all of their second graders. Hey, how about we test everybody in second grade? Well, thank God we have a new superintendent that not only gets it, but was able to work with our director. And now the school district has their scope and sequence for gifted and talented is now going to be nonverbal, verbal, and quantitative district-wide. That means that we don't have to put all the pressure on teachers to be able to identify if a student is gifted or not, because we know that implicit bias comes into place. 
We know that some teachers may not fully understand adverse childhood experiences and how those behaviors could potentially act out negatively in the classroom. You know, Black girls, going back to the National Women's Law Center, looking at Let Her Learn campaign, when Black young girls have leadership qualities and they are being reduced to words such as defiance, very broad terms, or disobedience, instead of being fostered and negatively impacting child, which can discourage them from wanting to learn or even wanting to be in a classroom if their teacher does not identify with them or be able, who care about them or be able to understand them. But I was able to do that by advancing the conversation and asking for data, bringing up recommendations, and finally the icing on the cake, getting the correct superintendent that understood what the board wanted and actually made the investment to make it happen. I think it's important that governing boards understand their fiduciary responsibility. And I'm going to be flat out honest. You have a number of governing boards that don't even know how to read their budget. So how do you know where the money is going? Because the budget is supposed to be our moral document, but we have to take it a step further, Dr. Manning and make sure that we are contracting with vendors that also are culturally competent and reflect the demographic and have this deep understanding and knowledge and training and awareness of ACEs, historical trauma, systemic racism, and how these childhood traumas can impact our students. Indeed, a lot there, a lot there. You know, I think to sort of recap, some of the challenges and wins that you faced, you know, one is being very, in terms of the wins area, the accomplishments, being very intentional about having a vision of educational equity for yourself as a leader and, of course, for the school district. Thinking about the financial obligations and where the money is going, is the money, the resources and the finances being spent, is that reflective of the goals and visions that that you all have established, and then also being intentional about who you all contract with and bringing in consultants and community partners and leaders who can really help to advance, again, your goals and vision as a district and then as a leader yourself. And then some of the challenges, you know, really experiencing biases, experiencing the stereotypes of Black women in leadership. So, you know, some personal challenges there as well as professional challenges. A lot of it shared. I had to push for that, Dr. Manning, because at first the the board didn't even have professional development budget. It was frowned upon. I had board members who felt as if they would actively fight against me being able to go take professional development trips. They saw me going to Washington, D.C. as a free trip. And I said, you think I want to sit up here and take a free trip, wake up at five o'clock in the morning and get on the plane, to go and fly all dang on day to the East Coast, to wake up three hours earlier when it's like <laughs> 5 a.m. in Arizona, to sit in these classrooms and play around. No, I was getting to know people. I was networking with my peers. So what I did in that respect is I brought it to the board's attention that we should start having board retreats. It was no type of, no United. It was all superintendent. The board was very hands-off when I first joined the board. So establishing board retreats was number one advocating for the professional development funding. And let me tell you another win with that. You know, you had a shift in the board. 
you know, the urban school district, the typical urban school district may have majority Caucasians on their board. And these are not parents. These are just community members who have the time and the financial assets to serve in a capacity that some may perceive as volunteer. It's actually work and it is a job. It just depends on how you look at it. And I know it could be a challenge. That's why it's such a challenge for marginalized communities to serve because we have to be able to take care of our livelihoods and ourselves and it doesn't give much space for meetings in the daytime and what have you. That conversation got pushed further to have my board explore. You know, I always, even, you know, as board president and even a a regular board member, I wanted to hear from my other board members what areas were they passionate about, what they cared about, and what did they want to explore so that I could work to empower them so that we could be working together as a body so that there was a shared responsibility that they were working just as hard as I was. And what I realized is that you can't force adults to do nothing. It's going to be up to them. But at least they start having more of an opportunity to come around. And that led to a policy change. You know, I advocated for our governing board to have access to credit cards when we travel. I'm going to talk, say this again. It's wonderful and congratulations to all of Black and Brown people who are able to get elected a school board with that great responsibility, but you still have families to take care of. You still have, you know, yourself you have to take care of. And You know, I really appreciate those who really take time to invest in their professional development because you're not working when you go fly somewhere for four and five days. You're not getting paid. I wasn't getting paid. Um, I didn't have a salary, you know, position. I mean, I felt as if it was a financial burden when you are in public service to be doing something that you are doing that's going to benefit your position and the people that you serve. That's a tough financial burden. You go to Washington, D.C. and, you know, hotels are $200 a night. So it's a new policy that's in place that each board member has access to the credit card. They'll sign it out 48 hours before they go to their conference and what have you. Same procedures, keep all your receipts and everything, and then bring it back once you return and sign it back in to lessen the financial burden. Thank you for sharing that very much that insider perspective in terms of leadership. What sort of insider tips and perspectives might you have for parents, particularly people who want to be engaged with their child and their child's education in school and people who are, you know, lots of times parents, particularly black and brown parents may face a lot of struggles and challenges with, with their voices being heard and advocated for and supported What sort of insider tips might you have for parents, particularly people who are listening, who want to be more involved and or who are involved, but they may not be seeing the changes that they are advocating for within their district? I would just say this. First, I would say volunteering your child's classroom. And you can plan for that. You know, it may be an off day. Maybe you might be only able to come during lunchtime. You'll be surprised our kids' faces light up. I mean, I always wanted to be like that cool mom. And I know I was doing too much when my baby was in middle school, but it was cute for me to come up with a quick flex. And, you know, he'll be trying to show off when I'm there. But, you know, I had, you know, volunteered in the lunchroom. You know what I mean? They needed some help. So whether it's your lunch break, some schools have like coffee talks where parents can come together in the morning. And they also offer evening as well, where they may have like a parent or family night. 
I would say get engaged that way. I really encourage parents to set up a meeting with your school's principal, get to know what their vision is and what are they doing to support a child like yours? What is the support that you feel as if your child needs that they are not receiving? I would also encourage parents to look online if you have access to the internet or if you go up to the school or call up to the school and ask when are the governing board meetings held. You know, a lot of parents don't even know that boards exist. We are the accountability. You know, we are the ones who you vote for uh, at the bottom of your ballot, you know, on a, to the right, on the other column, the other side of your ballot who are in charge of making sure that operations is ran as it should be and having that fiduciary responsibility. But, you know, we are passing items on the agenda, such as personnel. This is our hires, you know, are we still welcoming teachers back that you feel like are damaging students? You have an opportunity to speak up and learn about that. You know, with parent groups, I would say join a parent group If you feel as if it helped, you know, a lot of times, sometimes, I won't say a lot, but I'll just say sometimes parent groups can differ, meaning that sometimes they're led by a majority who could be there, but then there are still marginalized communities who feel like their voice is not even heard and their issues are not even discussed in that particular parent meeting. So I would say create your own, you know, talk to other parents. I will also encourage parents at least once a year to set up a meeting with your school district superintendent. I think that that would be, and that could provide a lot of answers, you know, to some of your questions. And it just could, I would just say develop a relationship. But I think you also should be keenly aware of what's being voted on at the governing board meetings. And if you can't attend a meeting, a lot of districts are meeting virtual due to the pandemic. So they may have YouTube channels where you can rewatch the videos. They may have um, videos archived on the school's website under the governing board tab. And they may have meeting minutes that are archived in a on board docs, if you can get access to that. And if you can't get access to that school districts, I know school districts like ours, we're thoughtful enough to have access to laptops and computers for parents. Should they be trying to enhance their educational knowledge or search for different employment opportunities? That's a blessing. That's good. That's good. And I think the school district, Dr. Mann, I think the school district should also understand how are they best trying to outreach to parents. I think that the district also has a, a lot of accountability. Well, I learned that works at some of our schools is that when you have food available, you know, because parents are like, okay, if the kids get out of school, I'm getting off work at 4.35. I got to go home, get them situated with homework, take my clothes off, get changed, prepare dinner. Ain't nobody got time to go. That I got to make sure my family's straight. I have to think about being outside of being a mother of one child. What if I have multiple children? You know, you telling me to get my multiple babies. How can I get there? Is it being held at an accessible venue in a district that the family could walk to? Are we keeping in mind that, you know, we want to be able to help? We know that hunger is an issue because of our poverty level and because of our free and reduced lunch level. So I think the school board, school districts definitely bear the responsibility of formulating a plan, an effective plan to reach parents where they are needed and not just in times of crisis. Wow. That's powerful. Powerful. Thank you, Chanel, for your insight and 
your perspectives, sharing your story, your experiences, all of that. We appreciated you and for bringing your voice to the table, sis. (laughs) So happy, so happy to impart knowledge. So happy to help. I just want parents to know that you do not have to feel helpless. Mm. Like it is supposed to be teamwork in this fight. And, you know, Mm. I struggle with my son up until the 12th grade where I'm a sitting elected official. Mm-hmm. And I have to call the superintendent to say, what the heck is going on? How y'all treating my child? Do you know how wonderful he is at X, Y, and Z? And this has also taught me how to be a better neighbor. Because like I said, I live in the most west part of our district. I'm connected to community, okay? And when these kids over here be acting out and I be that lady that get ready to come outside and they hear my door open, I have to meet them with love. I have to meet them with some sort of, I don't necessarily want to say discipline, but I want to say some sort of understanding that you know I'm not pleased with y'all picking up and throwing rocks. I'm not pleased with y'all jumping on the roof up there. You know, I had to say to them, I had to, you know, as adults, we have to kind of check ourselves too about how we're responding to students' behavior. So instead of like, when they up on the roof, I'm like, now what if you hurt yourself? That would be a tragedy. You will be in a cast. You will be able to play. You know what I mean? So I would just say, you know, to some of our children who may not be supervised by adults often, please provide them some grace and just try to, you know, impart some love and knowledge to them. Indeed. indeed. So what is a way for our listeners to stay in contact with you, Chanel, if people want to learn more about you, ask you to speak at their school or organization, or want to be connected with you, how may they be able to do so? Okay, the website is in the works. So by the time this airs, it should be up and running. ChanelPo.com. And that's a Chanel with two N's. It's spelled like channel. And that's P-O-W-E.com. And then I will be having a new email. But you can reach me at ChanelPo, C-H-A-N-N-E-L-P-O-W-E at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Chanel underscore A-Z or on Instagram at ChanelPoAZ. And I would love to help impart knowledge on any group, organization, or district so that we can shift the trajectory for the educational outcomes specifically for our students of color. Indeed, indeed. Well, thank you for sharing your contact information. Thank you for sharing your stories, your wisdom, your strategies, your knowledge, your insight, your perspective, all of that. Thank you for being here, Chanel. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening. Support Dr. Manning's podcast and please share with a friend. (laughs) Thank you, Chanel. And on that note, yes, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast, where we have been delighted to share our information with you. Yes, please share, please like, please subscribe, please rate and review. And um, and tell us what you are thinking. And of course, if you have some ideas for episodes and if there's a topic that you would like to hear, you can email me, Carla at equityleadershipgroup.com and I would be glad to respond to you. So thank you for tuning in. It has been a pleasure being here. You be well and be blessed.